0: Hey, I'm back. Did you miss me? Yeah. Really? That was nice. Yeah. Um, so uh, last spring, I, I kind of was getting this you know, impression, this feeling from God that he was calling us as a community and as individuals um, to step further out and to, to carry him and his love and his message of, of hope and peace and joy out further into the world around us. Uh, but before we could do that, we needed to sink our roots deeper into, into who he is and, and how he acts and, and what he does. So I started thinking and praying, and uh, so this teaching series that we're in the middle of right now, that we're calling Who is God, started way, way back then with God kind of putting that on, on my mind, and the two phrases were deeper and farther, right, that we need to get deeper in, into God and we need to go reach farther out for him. And we started with this premise that God is perfect, God is true, and God is power. And in all of these things, He is for us. We spent the last four or five weeks talking about God is perfect. And we started with the idea that God is perfectly unique and that He is one God. The God of the Bible is one God. But He exists in three persons, co-equally, co-eternally, Father, Son, and Spirit. And those three are one. And then we moved on and we talked about how He's perfectly perfect and he has these attributes that are his and his alone, that he is eternal, that he is the uncaused cause, that he is unchangeable, that he is sovereign, he's controlled, he has control over everything, those, those attributes that are his and his alone. And we talked about things, how he's perfectly loving and perfectly just and perfectly holy. And because he's perfectly holy, we should respond to him with worship and that should push us further out into the world with his, with his message and, and with his love. And we transition now into this idea of God is true. The, uh, the New Testament author, John, captured this thought that Jesus shared about himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in any, if we're going to figure out who God is and this aspect of God is being true, that road only goes through Jesus. We have to figure out what, what, that, what that means. So as we, um, as we think about Jesus, we think about man and God coming together, and the, the word for that is incarnation. Throughout this series, we've been using a lot of words that we don't use in everyday language, words like sovereignty and trinity and immutability, and now we add this word incarnation, right? It would be really easy to sit back and think that these are words reserved for... You know, there's just like ivory tower mumbo-jumbo and only for guys in, you know, sweaters with patches on their elbows and, you know, they go by their initials like R.C. Sproul and A.W. Tozer and J.I. Packard, which just, by the way, I will never be a great theologian because I only have one initial. I don't have a middle initial, so um, I'm not bitter about that, but I I digress. Um, But these, it is absolutely necessary that we ground ourselves in these ideas of who God is, and especially this idea of incarnation, because it is what Christianity is, is based upon. And as we think about going out into the world, we think about where we live. We think about being in Fairfield County, a place where people have everything and yet lack the peace with God, the peace of God. And we have the opportunity to carry that with us as we go. And that's what this idea of incarnation is all about, is that we would go to those are, who are in need and that we would bring the peace of God with us as we, as we go. So this idea of, of peace with that, that comes with following Christ, um, we get this idea. As we enter into the Christmas season. A term we hear for Jesus more this time of year than we do other years is Prince of Peace. And that term comes from an ancient prophecy, which is in the, um, the book of the Bible called Isaiah. Isaiah was one of God's chosen men to deliver his message to the people of Israel. And Isaiah had this really um, interesting job because he had a message of judgment, which was really scary and intense, but he also came with this message of hope. Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah, I think it's like 61 chapters, 60 plus chapters, in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah tells the people that judgment, the judgment of God is coming because they have time and again turned their backs on God and the the judgment of God is going to come to these two invading nations, one right after the other, one scarier and worse than the other and that's how God's, God's justice is going to be brought. Right after chapter 8 and chapter 9, we see these famous verses that bring this message of hope. And I'm going to read them for us. This is Isaiah chapter 9, if you're following along, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, and establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So this was a message that was delivered to um, God's people that were in a state of, of war. They were, there was a, a, um, a mood of despair and kind of gloom. And not unlike the world in which we live today, but Jesus, this message of hope, that peace is going to come, that peace will become to God's people, and that it will be there forever. And that comes through the Prince of Peace, that comes through Jesus. In the Bible, the term peace, one of its meanings is, one of the original words was this word shalom, and it means um, wholeness or a sense of fulfillment and completion, and it also refers to a, like the peace within a relationship that has been restored And this piece specifically comes at uh, God's initiative, right? It's God's initiative that brings shalom to a rebellious people. As you think about all the other uh, belief systems in the world, all the other religions, none of them, none of them call Jesus God. They all make account for Jesus, they they feel the need to account for Jesus. Um, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Hindus, Buddhists—they all think Jesus is um, anything from a prophet to a wise teacher to a you know a fully a fully evolved human, um, a, even a god, but not the god. This idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man is unique to Christianity. And it's it's like the founding principle of, of what Christianity is, that God came to earth as a man and did what only he could do to restore a relationship with his people. That's a really, really bold claim, that this man Jesus was 100% God along with being 100% man. And we need to be really sure if we're going to... Um, if our true peace is found in Jesus, we need to be 100% certain that this, um, that this claim that Jesus is fully God and fully man is trustworthy. So I wanna, I'm going to kind of break it down. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the fully God part because thinking of a man as fully God can be, be a little hard to get our brains around and um, touch a little bit on the fully man. And then next week, uh, we're going to talk more about Jesus being fully man and what that, what that means for us. Jesus as fully God. So listed things up there. I'm going to run through them real quick, but I'm going to talk about the first one and the last one in a little bit more detail. Fulfilled prophecy and self-proclamation. So again, in the book of Isaiah, this is towards the end, in Isaiah chapter 61, um, there are some things said about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and he comes into a temple, and he starts to read from the book of Isaiah. And this, this is found in um, this account of Jesus reading the book of Isaiah is found in Luke. I'm going to read it to you. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on a Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery for sight of the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a really big deal. Jesus stood up in the temple and he said, that prophecy that was made hundreds of years ago, you're looking at him. Not only is it a fulfilled prophecy, but Jesus is claiming to be God, right? So fulfilled prophecy, there's the, I forget the odds, there's like some sort of crazy calculation about all the prophecies that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus from the Old Testament. That coupled with the fact that Jesus is telling us that yes, I am God. You're looking at the fulfillment of that prophecy, other reasons we can be confident that Jesus is one hundred percent God. He shared some of those attributes that I talked about that only God could have. For example, um, Jesus is out on a boat with his with his buddies. They're fishing and he's taking a nap, right? They're on a trip. Storm kicks up. He stands up. Right? Jesus is true peace. He stands up and he says to the winds and the waves, "He says, peace. Be still." And the winds and the wave stopped he has control over nature and over creation. Only the creator can have control over creation. He received worship. One of the very first things we read in the Christmas story is that right, the Magi came and worshiped Jesus. The shepherds came and worshiped Jesus. As he grew older, he did not turn away people worshipping him. Any a, a good Jew at that point if someone tried to worship them, they would say, "No, no, no, that's blasphemy. You can't do that." But Jesus received worship. It actually got him in trouble. But he received the worship of people because he was indeed God. He lived a sinless life. He walked throughout his existence as a human in the same way that we do, faced all the same struggles that we do, and yet he did it without sin. And the last one that I want to point out is that the, just what the New Testament authors, the people who walked with Jesus, who actually walked with him, these are the most re- reliable accounts that we have of Jesus' life. The New Testament authors. Um, in the book of John, right, one of Jesus' closest friends and his, his biographer, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Referencing Jesus, Jesus is the word. Jesus existed before time with God, and he is the glory of God. He is God. Chapter 1 of Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus because he is God. First chapter of Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God and, his exact, and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is 100% God, 100% God. The New Testament verifies it over and over and over again. The New Testament is one of the best Documented set of um, recordings that we have from antiquity. Better testified than the, you know, the, writing, the writings of, of Socrates and Aristotle and Homer and everybody that we get taught in school that this is, you can trust that. The New Testament has more document evidence than, than any of those recordings. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. History tells us, the New Testament tells us that Jesus, he, um, he was born, he grew, he physically grew. He was a baby, and he grew into a man. He ate, he slept, he bled, and he died. Physicality, physically. He, um, Jesus interacted with people on an emotional level. Jesus loved. Jesus was encouraged by his followers. Jesus had a sense of humor. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was abandoned. He was emotionally 100% man. Jesus had an earthly mother and an earthly father. He had siblings. He had friends. He had enemies. Relationally, Jesus was 100% man. Physically, emotionally, relationally, Jesus was 100% man. 100% God. 100% man. Right? You guys are gonna hear that in your sleep tonight. 100% God. 100% man. That's the idea of the incarnation, that God would take that form, right? This idea of incarnation, that God would take that form and come to earth. What that means is that on the cross, the God of the universe died on that cross. He is the only one who could atone for the sins of all humanity, the only one, because a sin against an infinite being is an infinite sin. And he's the only one who could atone for that. He's the only one, as 100% man, who could sit at the Father's right hand right now and mediate for each one of us, because he walked, he walked in our shoes. 100% God, 100% man. The physics of it, I don't I don't understand. But what we there's a couple things we need to be really clear about, though, is that they don't. Um, Jesus doesn't kind of go back and forth between God and being man, and they don't kind of blend. He is always 100% God and 100% man. I wanted to share with you a couple verses from the book of Philippians that um, might help us understand this a little bit. And you guys, my my hope and my prayer all this week is that is that this this idea of Jesus coming to earth and walking with us and for us and coming to us and meeting us right where we're at and doing things for us that we couldn't do, just that it would just fall really, really heavy on each one of us. And if the things of God are new to you, that maybe this would be something that would grab hold of you and be like, oh my goodness, I need to pay attention to this. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, that this would stir in your heart and it would, um, it would just compel you to move further along with, with Jesus. So, in the book of Philippians, the author Paul is writing to encourage uh, these new believers in Jesus how they should act. And he's, he's holding up Jesus as their role model. And he's portraying the humility of Jesus and why that is worthy of example. Within that, we get an explanation of this idea of what happened in the, um, in the incarnation. In your relationships with one another, well, Excuse me. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I'm going to go back one slide for a second. He made himself nothing. Um, and some of you read a Bible translation called ESV. Uh, we have these things called translations of the Bible. Some of them are, they're like word word for word translations from the original languages. And they tend to be a little bit harder to understand and the grammar is really screwy. Um, and then there's like this continuum that the Bible that we teach from that you see up on the screen is called the New International Version. And that's kind of, it's um, more thought for thought. So they take the original language, a group of people, and they put it into modern-day English so we can understand the idea that was trying to be communicated. Halfway between that word-for-word and the NIV where we use is something called the ESV, the English Standard Version. All that just to explain, I'm going to talk from a different version for a second. ESV says he emptied himself. Jesus made himself nothing in the NIV. ESV says he emptied himself. What, did, what, what does that mean? He emptied himself, he made himself nothing. Does that mean that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, that he, when he walked the earth as a man, he was no longer God? Absolutely not. <clears throat> what scholars tell us is that it was, if we think of it as um, subtraction by addition, right? That Jesus, 100% God, added human nature onto his being and voluntarily subjected himself to the limitations that come with the idea of being human, right? He needed to sleep, he needed to eat. He was in the confines of the skin and bones that were the person of Jesus Christ. And we just saw that while he was, had all that physicality, he did not leave any of his deity behind because he controlled nature and he r- rose people from the dead and he shared those attributes with God. Fully God, fully man. And I was trying to think about, um, as, as we go, helping us understand this, and I use a phrase a lot, and I don't want it to lose its significance. The phrase that I use is, Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time. And I want us to grasp the, the weight of of what that means that what Jesus did when he left the when he left heaven behind and came to earth the the essence of the incarnation of Jesus leaving his father's side and coming to us to meet us in our place of need and do for us what we could not do for ourselves unquestionably an epic journey and quest if there ever If there ever was one, and as I was thinking about this, um, not really sure there's necessarily uh, if if we can come up with a perfect illustration or analogy for this, but I will I will offer this to you as a a, kind of an explanation. Um, Both my boys were adopted. My younger son Jared, uh, his birth mom lived in lived in Florida. So we're going back in time now. Um, Jared was due around October 1st-ish, somewhere in there. Gail's best friend was getting married October 1st-ish. I don't remember the exact date, somewhere around there. So Gail was the maid of honor. We packed up our minivan, drove to Washington, DC, where the, the wedding was to be held, and we threw all our stuff in the car just in case we got the call that was saying, hey, Jared was born, so we could just go from DC down to Florida. Went to DC, wedding was beautiful, Cynthia got married, no, Jared. We drove back to Connecticut. I couldn't remember. I, I'm pretty sure we left the car packed because it was like that close to being any any minute. We got the call. Jared was being born. Gail and I and three-year-old Jake piled into the minivan, drove 20 hours straight to Jacksonville, Florida. Jared was born, happy, healthy, beautiful little baby, big big fat face, um, and so. Because there's no federal adoption laws, right? Adoption laws are all by state. There, there's interstate compact laws. We had to wait for government bureaucracy, red tape, to, to do its thing. Took Jared home from the hospital, Gail and I, three-year-old Jake, newborn Jared, 10 days in a hotel room, hanging out. We, um, I was able to teach Jake to swim in the hotel pool, so that was, that was the upside. Um, I, had just, I had just left my corporate job, and we were in the process of planning our first retreat with, with students. I was convinced that I wasn't going to make it back in time, so I scripted this retreat for our volunteers down to the minute. Like at 9.32, say good morning, students. Like, you know, 9.35, start prayer. Like the, whole, the whole weekend, just in case I didn't, I didn't get back, I was like that convinced this, this thing was just going to keep stretching out. Just left my corporate job in which I traveled a lot. I had racked up all these Marriott points. I'm like, oh, man, we're going to have Marriott points for life. All of them gone. <clears throat> Finally, we did what they told us not to do, and we called the state of Connecticut and said, hey, can you look for our paperwork? We were told that if we called the state of Connecticut, they would shove our paperwork down to the bottom of the, of the pile. And they're like, oh, yeah, that person is on vacation. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get on that. Two days later, paperwork's done, we're driving home. I don't know how many times, maybe three or four times throughout the course of that week, we got reprimanded by, um, I think it was all older ladies, for um, having a newborn out in public. We took him to the zoo, we were out at restaurants, like, what are you doing with that baby? You should not be out in public. We finally get home. We got home on Halloween, right? Gail takes Jake to the Georges, they go trick-or-treating, finally catch our breath. All of that. All of the money, all of the time, all of the effort, all of the energy, all of the frustration. I would do it again and a 100 times over, so that we could meet Jared where he was, completely helpless, as all newborns are, and do for him the things that he couldn't do for himself, and pick him up, and make him ours, and bring him peace, and bring him home. That's what Jesus did in the incarnation. He left, he had unimpaired relationship with his father. He sat in heaven with his father, with the Holy Spirit, and he left that behind, and he came to us in our dire need to meet us where we are, to do the things for us that we could not do for ourselves, and to bring us. True peace. That's what the incarnation is all about. It's about bringing peace to those who are in need. It's about going to people who are in need with the peace of God and bringing it to him. So what does that, what does that mean for us? We can, be, we can be confident in who Jesus is and the things that he said and did. 100% God, 100% man. We can be confident in that. We should, we can respond to that. A very interesting thing happens in the Western world this time of year, around December, and it's actually very biblical. 90% of the Western world completely reprioritizes their life around Jesus. Well, kind of. Right? We reorganize our schedules for Christmas parties. We reorganize our finances so we can buy gifts that we can't really afford and pay for them until March. Right? We reorganize our associations. We make travel plans to see people who we normally wouldn't see. We reprioritize everything. And somewhere a long time ago, originally, that reprioritization was about Jesus. But we flipped that whole thing on its head. And instead of seeing what we do is we see Jesus through the Christmas celebration instead of the other way around we got to flip that around and see the Christmas celebration through Jesus. Are we tracking? Does that make sense? So how do we, how do we do that? How do we reprioritize the reprioritization? I'm going to give you a couple thoughts, and this is what we're going to, we're going to end with. The first one is that I would encourage you to pray, and neither of these are going to be shocking to anybody, but they're just reminders, especially this time of year as we get caught up in all of this stuff of the season, to slow down and to be with God. From, from Philippians chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Please don't overthink what prayer is you, you prioritize it value it absolutely absolutely but don't overthink it prayer is being with god you don't have to say anything as a matter of fact i would encourage you to just sit and be still and be with god if you feel like you need to say something but you don't know what to say open up the bible if you let your bible flop open to the very middle it's going to be the book of Psalms. Some of the greatest prayers ever written. You can read any one of those as your own prayer. Go to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Jesus' disciples said, how should we pray? Jesus, There's a prayer in there from Jesus himself. The Lord's Prayer sometimes called the Our Father. You can read that. You can talk to God just like you would talk to me or anybody else. Just have a conversation. Above... Anything else, prayer is about being with God. And when we're with God, even in when the, the world around us is going nuts, we'll have a peace that passes understanding. The peace of God is the only thing, the only thing that can do that. The next thing I would suggest to you is that you open up your Bibles and you read them. If only you had paid attention to my commands... Your peace would have been like a river. Your well-being like the waves of the sea. God's peace flows through his commands. His commands are not burdensome. They're not meant to weigh us down. They're not meant to put an end to our fun. God's commands are meant for him, for his glory, and for our good. The Bible speaks to money. It speaks to sex. It speaks to relationship. It speaks to time management. All of it is found within God's Word and if we take the time to read it and apply it peace like a river well-being restored relationship you guys it, we we can make this so difficult it doesn't it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be difficult as a community we've decided we're going to devote December to keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus to looking up and keeping our eyes fixed on him. And we're gonna do that by gathering together, committing to be here every Sunday throughout December. One of the other things that we're doing that started this morning, and it's not too late, is this idea of the um, a Christmas devotional. There was a slide in there that somehow got moved around. Virginia, can you find that slide for me? It's three panes of blue. Um, there's a Bible app on your phones called you version And they provide devotionals. It's a, it's a thought. There's an author who provides some thoughts for the day and then some scriptures and a prayer. Right? What did we just say brings peace? Prayer and Bible study. And we're doing this together. That's another thing that can bring peace is being with your brothers and sisters. So if you text the word Devo, D-E-V-O, D-E-V-O, to that phone number that's up on the screen, you will get a link and once you get that link, you click on it, and that's the devotional. A bunch of people already started doing it this morning. Today is day one. I would encourage you, if nothing else, to spend, it goes every day from now through Christmas. And it's maybe seven to ten minutes worth of reading. You can spend more time praying. But I would encourage you to, to do that and to get involved and, and to connect with other people as, they're, as we're reading and praying together. So that slide that was up there a couple couple minutes ago, this idea of obedience leads to peace. Right? When the Bible says, pray when you're stressed and the peace of God that passes understanding will be with you. If you follow my commands, you have peace like a river and you'll have well-being. Obedience leads to peace. God's commands are not burdensome. So I'm going to ask the, the band to come back up here and we're going um, to celebrate communion together here in a minute. And I want to I wanna draw your attention to this idea of the incarnation as we celebrate communion. Um, communion was a meal, the first communion was a meal that Jesus shared with his closest followers the night before he died. And in that, in that meal, he, he wanted us to remember him and what he did, and who he is, and who he wants to be to us, and this idea of, of the incarnation, that, that only, only God could atone for the sins of humanity, and only a man could mediate between God and man. If Jesus were not fully God, he could not atone for the sins of humanity, Okay? If Jesus were not fully man, he could not mediate for us. If Jesus were not fully God, he could not beat death. If he were not fully man, he could not experience death. If Jesus did not step out of eternity and into time, he could not have experienced the pain and the angst and the struggle that sometimes goes along with life as a human and if he did not come from heaven, he could not bring the peace of heaven to us and offer it to us. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And because he is, he brings us, he offers us true peace. So as we celebrate communion this morning, I would, um, I would draw your attention to Jesus as fully God and fully man and how those things work together to offer us a peace that passes understanding, a peace that we cannot grasp on our own. And if you have never, um, maybe God is stirring in you for the first time, and that idea of a peace, that idea of, I've been, I feel like I've been missing something, and that peace is what I long for. Maybe this is your opportunity to say, Jesus, please, I want that peace. And it's really, really simple, You just say, Jesus, I'm I'm sorry for the things that I've done that have hurt you and hurt other people. Please come into my life and lead me, and I commit as best I can to living for you for the rest of my days. That opens the door. That's peace with God. That opens the door for the peace of God that we could experience even in the midst of the chaos of the Christmas season. So the band's going to play, the ushers are going to come forward, and they're going to hand you a small piece of gluten-free bread and a small cup of grape juice. And I would just ask that you hold on to those and spend some time asking God to reveal himself to you as the only one who is 100% God and 100% man and offers true peace. Hold on to them until this song is over. I'll come back up and we'll take those together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that you have done the things that we couldn't do for ourselves, that you met us right where we're at and that you don't leave us there. Father God, I pray for each person here this morning, whatever it might be, God, if it's, um, maybe there are folks here this morning who have never known your peace. Lord Jesus, we pray your peace would fall heavy on this place. God, maybe there are people who've been walking with you for a while and there are just things going on in their lives. It just feels like the world is upside down. And more than anything, they need your peace. Lord Jesus, please allow your peace to fall on this place. God, we thank you. It's your initiative. We thank you that you come to us. God, we admit that there's nothing that we've done to deserve that. It's only your grace and your goodness. Lord Jesus, thank you for your peace. Amen.